This is Arcturus. It's a star, as you can tell. It is uh, 36 light years away from us. And a light year, does anyone know, is roughly how many miles? Anybody know? Six trillion. A light year is roughly six trillion miles. And a light year is obviously the amount of uh, the distance light travels in a year. So, um, this star is pretty far away. So, if you will imagine with me, Arcturus is out there six trillion miles away. When light leaves that star, it takes 36 years for it to get to us. So if you were to go out tonight, this is a pretty big star. You can actually see it with, with the plain eye um, if you know where it is. I don't, so I can't really point you in the right direction. Uh, but if you were to go out tonight when it was dark, if it was a clear night, and look up in the sky, you could see this star. And the light that you would be seeing would have left that star 36 years ago. Isn't that crazy? So imagine with me for a moment if this star, Arcturus, were to burn out. If we were to burn out, and if you were to go back out tonight and look up in the sky, you would still see that light, wouldn't you? In fact, if this star had burned out 35 years ago, and you were to go out tonight and look up in the sky, you would still see the light from that star. That's crazy, isn't it? It would appear to us as though it was alive, shining bright, nothing's wrong, when in fact, it would be very much dead. This is the church at Sardis. Turn with Revelation uh, to Revelation chapter three with me. We've been going through Revelation and been looking at the seven churches, and this morning we're looking at the church at Sardis. It's in chapter three and it starts in verse one. Christ is speaking and he says this in verse one, chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who have the seven stars of God and the uh, seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Sardis, from all outward appearances, looked as though it was alive. They looked like they were a, a thriving, healthy, busy church going about their daily tasks, works. Perhaps they had church programs established. But God doesn't look on the outside, does He? God looks at the heart. And God looked at Sardis and said, You're not alive, you're dead. The church at Sardis had just been practicing religion. They were just going through the motions. Everything seemed fine, but they were empty. There's another time in the Bible where Christ says a similar thing. When He was here on earth, He was talking to a group of individuals who lived the same way. Those would be who? The Pharisees. In Matthew 23:27, He says to them, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. What a picture that presents, doesn't it? If you think, when I think of it, I think of those big, ornate tombs that you see. Maybe not just the plain gravestone, but the big, ornate tombs. Maybe the big square ones that have the lid. You see them like in Indiana Jones movies. And they're beautiful. They're ornate. They have designs on them. Some of them have these big buildings. And if you imagine one of those just freshly painted white, beautiful, not a spot on it. Looks beautiful, but what is inside? A rotting corpse. Have you guys ever watched Bones? Yeah. You, you got a picture in your mind now? Think of any opening scene to that show. <laughs> a rotting corpse. Disgusting. Christ says to the Pharisees, On the outside, you look beautiful. But on the inside, you're nothing but a rotting corpse. Dead. Disgusting. It's the same thing he says to Sardis. George Eldon Ladd described the church of Sardis as this. He says, A picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with the externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. They were empty. Nothing was happening at this church, even though they appeared to be going about life just fine. Sadly, there are churches in America today like this, aren't they? There are churches that appear to be growing. They're building larger buildings. I heard of a church recently. I don't want to name any names because I am not the judge, only Christ is. But they have just moved to a stadium. They have thousands of people. And what I know from this church's doctrine, it would be my assumption and guess that they are very similar to the church at Sardis. They appear alive, but they're very much dead. Void of truth. Void of Christ. They don't speak the truth. They're only tickling ears. They are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So the thought this morning comes to us, doesn't it? I want to challenge us this morning. Are we the church at Sardis? Great Adventure is coming up on ten years. Ten years as a church. Leadership's planning a little celebration. Have our tenth anniversary. But have we settled in like Sardis into a routine? Has this just become religion to us? Or is the Spirit still alive, working in a powerful way in our body in this church? I was, uh, I joined the church about nine years ago, so about a year after it had been started. And for me, it was one of the most powerful times in my life when Christ was working in me in a powerful way, and He used this church in a powerful way to train me and teach me. Um, He used the, the leaders and the men in this church to teach me so much about what it means to be a Christian man and what it means to to be a leader in the church. 
I still have so much to learn. Um, but it was just a tremendous time in my life. The Lord taught me so much. And my challenge is, have we lost that here? To some degree? Or is the, sti- or is the Spirit still at work in a powerful way in this body? Teaching us, changing us, ch- molding and shaping Or are we just going through the motions? Are we still living with this bright glow from our past as though we appear alive and yet we're dead? I don't know. But I think it's something we need to seriously think about and examine. As individuals, as families, and as a corporate body. So what does he say to him? What does Christ say to the church in Sardis? In verse 2, he says, Wake up! Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. It seems that there was still some life left in Sardis. They weren't quite dead yet. They were only mostly dead. Right? Like Wesley, when they go to see the Miracle Max, he's only mostly dead. There's only one thing you can do when he's all dead, right? Which is... That's right, go through his pockets and look for loose change. So Sardis was only mostly dead. Christ said, strengthen what remains. There's, there's still life in you. You're not dead yet. Remember. Remember where you began. Remember that bright glow. Remember when the Spirit was alive and work at you. When the church was thriving. When you saw souls being saved. People's lives being transformed. Marriages being healed. Children learning and growing in Christ. There's a, a, a section in Pilgrim's Progress that reminded me of this. Pilgrim is on his journey. His name is now Christian. And he's journeying with his friend Hopeful. Um, and if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, it's by a man named John Bunyan and it's kind of a allegorical story of the Christian life. And so Pilgrim and Hopeful are journeying and they're very near the end of their journey. They're almost to the celestial city, which is eternity, heaven. So close. And they come upon this place called the Enchanted Ground. And before they get there, they're warned of this place. They said, the, the shepherds warn them. They say, be careful when you get to the Enchanted Ground. Don't fall asleep. Don't rest. It's a, it's a, it's a dangerous place. So, Here's where we pick up the story. Um, it's kind of in that old English, so I'm, bear with me as I try to read it. But It says, And here Hopeful began to, to be very dull and heavy of sleep. Wherefore he said unto Christian, I do now begin to grow so drowsy that I can scarcely hold up mine eyes. Let us lie down here and take one nap. By no means, said Christian, lest sleeping we never awake more. 
Hopeful said, Why, my brother, sleep is so sweet for the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. But do you remember the one of the shepherds bade us to beware of the enchanted ground? He meant by that that we should beware of sleeping. Wherefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. I acknowledge myself in fault, said Hopeful, and I had... And had I been alone, I had by sleeping run the danger of death. I see it is true that the wise man saith, Two are better than one. Hitherto hath thy company been my mercy, and thou shalt have a good reward for thy labor. Ephesians, or sorry, First Thessalonians 5, 6 says, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. I think it's evident I mean, I'm sure you can see it in others' lives, maybe in your own life. I've seen it in my life. We as Christians, as we go through the Christian life, it seems that after we've been a Christian for a number of years, more times than not, we hit this kind of plateau, don't we? We're not growing. We're not learning. Christianity ceases to be anything special or new, exciting to us. And it's just part of life. It's part of every day. It's part of going through the motions. I come to church on Sunday because that's what I do. We cease to walk in the Spirit. We cease to see the power of God at work within our lives because we cease to build that relationship with Him. And that's what Christian and Hopeful were walking through this enchanted ground and they were tempted just to lie down and sleep, to not move forward anymore just rest until the end. Um, I'm going to try to get through this story and I probably won't. My grandfather in these past three weeks has just been a tremendous example to me. This man is 86 years old and went in to have a quadruple back bypass surgery. The day before the surgery, they have these just every wire in the world attached to him. And there's this little box on him. Are you guys familiar with the wordless book? Some of you? It's a, it's a tool that um, the Child uh, Evangelism Fellowship uses. It's called the wordless book. And it's just each page is a different color and it tells a story. And so the outside is green and that's the... Christian is growing. There's a black page which represents sin. There's a red page that represents the blood of Christ. There's a white page which represents uh, our forgiveness and cleanness by Christ's death. And there's a gold page that represents the streets of gold where we will live as believers. So he has this little box on him. And believe it or not, it has like five different wires coming out of it. And they're all different colors. So every nurse or doctor that comes in to check on him, he pulls out this little box that is in his nursing gown and ceases to use these colors to share with them the gospel with the wordless book. Isn't that not amazing? His second, uh, his uh, third surgery yesterday, my dad called me and he said, he's been through two surgeries. The man just is, he looks like he's been hit by a truck. Um, his voice is very weak. He's about to be put under by the anesthesiologist, and he says to the anesthesiologist, Do you know the Lord is your Savior? 
And the anesthesiologist, actually the Christian, he says, yes, I do. He says, well, then will you pray with me as we go into the surgery? Um, the day after I saw him, which would have been a week ago Sunday, right after his second surgery, he looked awful. My dad and, and um, my grandmother went in to see him. And when I was there, he couldn't even talk. He could barely turn his head and look at me. Um, but he asked them to sing Amazing Grace with him. My grandmother is an awful singer. My dad's not much better, and you know how I sing, so you can get an idea. And my grandfather, who's just been through two open chest surgeries, <laughs> can you imagine the sound of these three feeble people singing Amazing Grace, and the doctors are outside? Dad said it was the most beautiful thing that he's experienced in a long time. But the faith of this man to me, to to see what he's gone through in these past two weeks, for him to say, God's grace is amazing. He is faithful to me, no matter what I'm going through. It was a tremendous thing. I want to be like my grandfather when I'm 85 years old. I don't want to fall asleep in the enchanted ground. I don't want to appear alive and truly be dead. Wake up, he says. Strengthen what remains. Remember. Remember. Much like the church in Ephesus, they were called to remember, weren't they? What were they called to remember? Their first love. They had forgotten their first love. And I think that's right where Sardis is too. They had forgotten Christ. They had forgotten that when they were saved, it was Christ that saved them. They had forgotten that as they were growing, it was because Christ was at work within them. They forgot that when the church began, it was because Christ planted it. And now they are just going through the motions. Doing their own thing. They had forgotten that it was all about Christ. He gives a warning to them in verse 3. He says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Where else in Scripture do we see that imagery of Christ coming as a thief? Right. Matthew, Thessalonians, the end times. And there's some debate as to whether that's the judgment seat or the rapture. But either way, the idea is coming sudden. Not knowing the hour as a surprise to us. Now this would have resounded with Sardis. This idea. And I think what Christ is talking about here is not the end times, not the rapture, but judgment on Sardis. He was coming to judge them. And that may have been some sort of discipline within their lives or in the church. It may have been that He was going to end the church, cease it from existing, break it up, make it no more. But we do know that Christ says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come when you least expect it. You're not even going to be ready because you're not awake. You're not watching. 
This is modern-day Sardis. You can see that it now lies in ruins. Mere fragments of a once great city. This is the uh, temple of Artemis, um, the goddess that they worshipped. Let me uh, read a quick section here about, about the city of Sardis. Sardis was the capital of the great kingdom of Lydia, one of the oldest and most powerful cities in Asia Minor. It was located inland and built on a small elevated plateau which rises sharply from the Hermes Valley. On all sides but one, the rock walls are smooth, nearly perpendicular and absolutely unscalable. The only access is on the southern side by a very steep and difficult path. As the civilization and commerce grew more complex, the high plateau became too small and a lower city was built chiefly on the west side of the original city. The old city was used as an acropolis. Actually, this made it a double city, and it was called now the plural noun Sardis, or Sardis. The plain was well watered by the Pactolus River. It was a very, very wealthy city, because that river, and I'm probably saying it wrong, Pactolus, here's a, a... Another view of that same city. There you go. Same view. You can see the mountains in the back. That's all that's left of the of the temple there. There's a couple other remnants around. But it was located on the banks of the Pactolus River. Um, it's about 60 miles from inland from Ephesus and Smyrna. And it was a very wealthy city. Silver and gold came from the mountains in that river, so they panned it out and they had silver and gold, which made them exceptionally wealthy. They were the first city to actually mint gold and silver coins. They also claimed, and we don't know if this is true or not, to be the first city who discovered the art of dyeing wool. And so they were very famous for their fabulous carpets. It was the capital, wealthy, prosperous, growing city. Um... And yet, um, look at it now. As that lower city grew, they built a a wall all around the city. So on one side they have these mountains, and then from there they built a wall all the way around. It was 20 meters thick, they think. It's a pretty thick, thick wall. And so with the the mountains on one side, the Acropolis, as they said, was you know, sheer rock. The city was practically impenetrable. They were wealthy, powerful. They thought nothing can touch us. And yet twice in history, enemies came in and conquered and overtook Sardis because they weren't watching, because they weren't being careful, and because they thought everything was fine. In 449 B.C., the Medan soldiers of Cyrus, and then again in 218 B.C., Antiochus the Great captured the city both times by scaling the wall while the guards just weren't paying attention. And the city was lost. Changed hands a number of times. It's kind of crazy how many times it was conquered and changed hands because they just 
weren't paying attention. And you'd think the first people that conquered it would have thought, you know, hey, we did this, maybe someone else will come along and will do the same thing we did, so we should be watchful. But no, they weren't. So this fitting command for, for Sardis, wake up! Be watchful! Because if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. And you will not know the hour. Because you're going to be asleep, just like those guards. Wake up. Note that this is not a light matter with Sardis. Have you noticed uh, the other churches that we've looked at? Christ started off with saying, you know, this is what's, what you're doing right, doesn't he? Did he do that with Sardis? No. He just says, you're dead, wake up. This is a serious thing. He's not saying to them, you know, it's, it's okay that you're spiritually empty as long as you're going through the motions. As long as you're showing up on Sunday, that's all I care about. That's not what he's saying, isn't it? He says, you're dead. Wake up and repent because this is sin or I'm going to come in judgment. It's not okay that we just come to church on Sunday. It's not okay that we just help with Sunday school and tithe. It's not okay that we just show up and put on a kind face and be loving to our brothers and sisters. Because if the light is just a shadow of what used to be, if we are walking around as just whitewashed tombs who appear beautiful on the outside but are really just filled with dead man's bones, then we are going to be the church at start. So let's examine ourselves this morning and make sure that that's not true of us. But not everyone in Sardis was this way. There was a remnant. And throughout Scripture, from the beginning of the Old Testament, there's always been a remnant, hasn't there? There's always been a small group of people that have not turned from the Lord. Whether it was only eight people against the rest of the world when Noah built the ark, or Gideon's 300, there's always been a remnant that have refused to turn from Christ, who have refused to be dead, but to focus on Him, to not forget where they began, to not forget who it is that has given them all things. And there was a remnant in Sardis. Verse 4, he says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And no one who conquers will be clothed thus in white... um, And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. 
I will confess his name before my God and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says there's a few left and they haven't soiled their garments. What does that mean? What is he referencing? What soils our garments? Sin. They haven't sinned like these others who have sinned and forgotten me and need to repent. They will walk with me in white. They are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. We see this idea of white garments a number of times in scriptures and it and it just symbolizes the idea of purity, holiness. Now this passage can present some difficult um, ideas. For instance, that I will never blot your name out of the book of life. We shouldn't take that to mean that if he promises one group of people, I will never blot you out of the book of life, that there is another group of people that he will blot out of the book of life. When we come upon passages like this, we need to understand them in the rest of the context of Scripture. If we look to John chapter 5, John also wrote there in chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but passes from death to life. Again, in John 10, John says in verses 28-30, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Ephesians 2.8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know that salvation is through faith alone in Christ. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. And so I believe this is merely a promise to those who will conquer, a promise to those who believe that their salvation is secure. That Christ will never blot them out of the book of life. That those, are con- those who conquer here are the true believers in Sardis. And that their worth in Christ, their worth is in Christ, Christ alone. That those white garments are because of His blood that has washed away their sin. So that one day, as in Colossians chapter 1 it says, He may present us before the Father holy, blameless, and above reproach. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what He has done. Not because of our own merit, but because of His blood. Because of His death. Because He bore our sins on the cross. So my challenge to you this morning is twofold. First, examine yourself. Are you a true believer? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? 
Have you trusted Him alone for your salvation? For His death on the cross for your sins? Or is this just religion to you? Is it just something you do? Is it just an empty identity that's a part of your life? Or is the Holy Spirit alive and well within you? Molding, shaping you, teaching you, changing you? Is Christ at work in your life? Because true believers will be known by their fruits. Just as James says, faith without works is dead. If we are truly believers, if we are truly Christians, the Holy Spirit will be alive and at work in our lives. We will see the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if you're not, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. As Christ said to, to Sardis, wake up! Because if you don't wake up, I'm coming. I'm coming in judgment. And it could be tomorrow. You don't know when it is. And He said that to us too. I have a free gift. I died for you. I paid for your sins. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is believe. And then when you stand in glory before my Father, He won't see your sin. He'll see you clothed in white because of my blood that was shed for you. Accept that this morning. If you don't know, you know, please come talk to one of the elders or myself after church and we can go through Scripture and we can show you how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. That you know that your sins are forgiven. And my second challenge is this to those that us that have been redeemed. Are you Mary or are you Martha? It's a familiar story. And you've heard it before, I'm sure, probably from my lips because I share it a lot. But it seems so fitting yet again this morning. Luke chapter 10, we find this story of Mary and Martha. In verse 39... Jesus had come to their house to visit and uh, we find Martha is getting everything ready. Verse 39 it says, And she had a sister named Mary, talking about Martha, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Christ says, Martha, one thing is necessary. Let us not be distracted by all the things going on in life. Even within church, let us not be distracted by all the things that we can get involved in and do. 
Because Christ says to us, one thing is necessary. And what was that one thing? Mary was seated at the feet of Christ, learning from His teaching, building that relationship. A relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important. If we're not in the Word, in prayer, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to good works, if we're just going through the motions, then we're dead. But if we're seated at the feet of Christ, if we're daily in His presence, then just like salvation, which is through Him alone, He will be the one to work through us to do mighty and powerful things. It's not us that glorifies Him. It's Him through us that glorifies Him. So let us be that church this morning. Let us be a church who doesn't just come together on Sunday mornings, put on a smile, say hello to one another. Let us be a body that spurs one another on to good works because I need you people. It was nine years ago that Christ used this church to change my life in a tremendous way. And He continues to do so. And I want Him to continue to do so. And I want to be a man who is willing and ready to be used by the Lord to change your life. But I can't do that if I'm a whitewashed tomb, if I'm dead inside. I can't share that life with you if there is nothing to share. So let's remember this morning. Let's remember who saved us. Let's remember why we come here on Sunday morning. It's not because you are all great friends and I love you so much, which I do. But it's because Christ has saved me. It's because Christ has said, Justin, I want you to get together with your fellow believers. I want you to love one another. I want you to encourage one another. I want you to be a light to the world. I want you to remember what I've done. I want you to remember that I died for you. I want you to worship me. I want you to encourage one another. I want you to disciple those that are young in the faith. I want you to encourage those that are who are downtrodden. Let's not be sardis. Let's be alive. Let's be a star that is shining, whose light will continue for years to come to impact the world around them. Father, we thank You so much this morning that we can come together in Your name. We thank You so much this morning that we can rejoice in the fact that we have been forgiven, that we have been redeemed, that our sins are no more, Father. You said You've cast them into the depths of the sea, Father, as far as the east is from the west. You will remember them no more. Father, I pray that we rejoice in that fact, that we rejoice that we have been redeemed, Lord, and that we would just not shut up about it. Father, I pray that we would be 
excited to share, Father, Your truth, Your name. That the things of You would be ever present upon our lips and upon our mind, Father. Use us, I pray, Lord. And Father, I pray if if we are asleep, Lord, wake us up. We love You. And we desire so much to love You more, Lord. And we need You because it's through Your Spirit alone, Father, that we uh, can do this. So we pray this in Your precious and Your magnificent name. Amen.